Well, good morning. Good to see y'all again. We are going to start with a little uh, game this morning. I uh, had a couple of volunteers I talked to before the service, Colin and Annie. If you guys are here, uh, come on up here. There they are. All right. Here's what we're going to do. Um, this is going to be a Bible trivia contest. And uh, the prize is $10 to Chick-fil-A. All right? Okay, it's pretty serious, I know. It's, it's going to be pretty intense up here. Just don't stand between them. All right. Okay, I'm going to start. Okay, five questions for each. And it is, uh, you guys see the, isn't that cool? Okay, little monitor down there. Tells me where we're going. Okay, five questions uh, for each person. This is uh, winner takes all. And uh, I will start, Colin, with you. Uh, here's the first question. What was the name of the prophet Isaiah's father? You guess. <laughs> that is incorrect. Uh, Amos. All right, Annie, here we go. According to Genesis 1-1, who created the heavens and the earth? You got it. All right. All right. Somebody knows her Bible. All right. Here we go. Colin. <laughs> what were the Hebrew names of Daniel's three friends? The Hebrew names. <laughs> okay, they're also, I'll give you a hint, they're known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Those are their Persian names. All right, it is uh, <laughs> Mishael, Azariah, and Hananiah. All right, here we go. All right, uh, Annie, the Bible is divided into two major sections. Can you name them? All right. Okay. Two for two. Here we go. Colin. Colin, what was the second city that Joshua destroyed when he went into the promised land? Probably one I can't pronounce. <laughs> no, you can. Second city. After Jericho. Does anybody know? You got it. AI. All right. There we go. I'll count that for you. Okay. All right. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> it's now one to two. Annie, the first man in history, Adam, had a wife. What was her name? Eve. You got it. All right, good. Okay, here we go. Colin. <laughs> Acts 17.34 mentions two people who believed in the gospel when Paul preached it. What were their names? Two people who believed when Paul preached the gospel in Acts 17. Oh, he preached over this. I did. Mm -hmm. Dionysius the Areopagite and Damaris. All right. Here we go. Annie, fill in the blank. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You got it. All right. Okay. Last question. Here we go. Colin, name the colors of the four horsemen of the apocalypse in Revelation 6. And what does each horse stand for? The four, the four colors. You got white, okay? Okay, uh, no, but, but it is white, okay? Black. Black is right. <laughs> no. 
There is no rainbow. There is white and black. Uh, we'll go with gray. Okay, no. Brown. And no. All right. The answers are <laughs> white, red, black, and pale. Uh, white representing the Antichrist, red, war, black, famine, and pale death. All right. And finally, Annie, uh, who wrote the book of First Peter? You got it. All right. Okay. Here you go. All right. Congratulations. Actually, Colin, I'm, just since you were a good sport, we got $5 for Amazon to you too. So, all right. Let's give him a hand. Okay. <laughs> now, as I was doing that, obviously, uh, if you were watching, that was a bit unfair, right? Uh, One person had a distinct advantage over the other. Uh, I had uh, clearly slanted the questions in Annie's favor instead of in Collins. Uh, It was rigged. Now, the reason that I use that illustration is uh, because that is the way that some people feel about God. Some people feel that God has uh, perhaps rigged the world in a way that's unfair. Some people have more advantages than others. Some people are rich. Some people are poor. Uh, Some people have more opportunity to hear about the gospel than other people. Um, It seems like if we just look from our perspective that the world is unfair, and if we believe that God is in control, the question comes up, uh, did God rig it that way? Uh, Last week, we talked about where do we go when we die, and and we discussed how the Scripture seems pretty clear that they're one of two destinations. Either you go to heaven or you go to Hades, and uh, the idea seems to be that there is no middle ground. There are no second chances. We really don't see those concepts in the Scripture. Uh, Where you head after death is dependent upon how you respond to Jesus in this life, whether or not you believe in Jesus. And so that raises questions. What about people who have never heard about Jesus? What about people who are incapable of believing? Maybe uh, very small children or those who have mental handicaps who can't believe. Uh, What do we do with those things? Another question is, if it is just for God to punish us for our sin, is it just that he would punish us for an eternity for sin that we committed during a finite lifetime? All right, so this raises all kinds of questions. Is God unfair? Um, Rob Bell, in his most recent book, Love Wins, he puts it this way. He says, of all the billions of people who have ever lived, will only a select number make it to a better place? And every single other person suffer in torment and anguish forever? Is this acceptable to God? Has God created millions of people over tens of thousands of years who are going to spend eternity in anguish? Can God do this or even allow this and still claim to be a loving God? All right, and, and his premise in the book is, no, that's not how God operates. But uh, if it is, as we've talked about last week, if we do believe that the scripture says that the, where you go when you die, uh, where you go for eternity is determined by how you respond to God in this life, how do we answer those questions of God's fairness? And I'll be honest with you, I'm going to walk through some scriptural data this morning, but I cannot fully answer all of those questions for you because some of those questions are wrapped up in the mysteries of how God works. And there does come a point where I kind of have to throw up my hands and say, I don't fully understand God's plan. But what I do want to take us through this morning is what does the Bible say 
about who God is? And how does that help us approach some kind of an answer to these questions of God's justice? We're going to look at some things that are true about God's character that I think if we look at them closely will help us understand the answers to these questions. All right, the first one is uh, this, that God is just. All right, God is just. Basically what that means is that God does what is right. And some of us wrestle with whether that's true or not. And maybe you have family members and friends who have not had the chance to hear the gospel or they have rejected the gospel and you, you wonder, will God take care of those people and do what is right? The scripture repeatedly tells us God is just. All right, Job 34 verses 10 to 12 says, Therefore listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to do wrong. For he pays a man according to his work and makes him find it according to his way. Surely God will not act wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Another passage, Romans chapter 3, verse 4. Let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, just as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you judge. All right, so the scripture tells us straightforward that God is just, meaning God does what is right. Now, that's not always the same idea as fair. Okay, our concept of fairness is what? Everybody is treated the same. Everybody gets the same things. Everybody has the same opportunities. Now, obviously, we look around the world and we see that's not completely true. Some people are born in poverty. Some people are born in wealth. People are born in all kinds of different situations. Some people have uh, smarter minds than others. Some people have healthier bodies than others. And so the concept of fairness is one that I think As Americans, we're often really into, we want to make sure everybody gets exactly the same things at exactly the same times or in the same ways. Biblically, what we see is God doesn't necessarily operate by our principles of fairness, but he does operate by justice. Again, fairness is the idea everybody gets the same thing. When I was a kid, and maybe you experienced this too, when it was time for us to get dessert, a pie or a cake or whatever, I have two brothers, and uh, your goal is, of course, to make sure that you get the biggest piece, right? Uh, But barring that, you just want to make sure they don't get the biggest piece. If you can't get the biggest piece, you want everybody's piece to be equal. So my dad had a system to prevent the fighting, and that is he, if my brother and I began to fight over who had the bigger piece of pie, dad would say, all right, uh, Dan, here's what we're going to do. Dan, you cut them in half, and Matt, you get to choose which piece you want. Now, you better believe that when it was your turn to cut the pie, you made sure those pieces were exactly equal, right? If you had to go get a ruler out and measure them, you wanted them exactly equal because you were deeply concerned with fairness. As we look at the scripture, though, we don't necessarily see God as concerned with everybody always getting the same circumstances and the same things. Instead, we see God concerned with justice. That is, God says, I will treat everybody in the right way, in the way that they deserve. That's justice. And particularly as you look at the Old Testament, you see God's justice coming to bear upon his people for their sin. And as you look at the New Testament, what is justice? What would justice demand? Well, as you look at the Bible, justice actually demands that everybody receive condemnation. God's justice demands that every single person who's ever lived be condemned because of their sin. If you got your Bible, open up to Romans chapter 1 for a moment. If you were in the main service this morning... Brian talked about this passage I'm about to read. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness 
and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And then he goes on to detail this spiral into sin that men and women have fallen. But the idea of that passage is this. God has given every single person in the world information about him. Now, he may have given some more than others, but he's given every single person enough information that they can make a choice, either to respond to God's revelation, both in their conscience and in the world around them, or to reject it. And what we see from Romans 1 is that everybody has chosen to reject it. Everybody runs away from God. That's the argument of Romans 1 through 3. Romans chapter 2 even indicates that even people who don't have the law, right? So this would be your pagan in Africa or somebody who doesn't have access to the scriptures. He says, even those people are without excuse. Look at verse 11 of chapter 2. There is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus." In other words, he says everybody has the law in some sense written in their mind, written on their heart, that there is a morality that is inherent to our being that God has placed in us to lead us to him. And everybody has creation to look around and say there's an eternal, all-powerful God who made this world and wants me to know him. And yet, we reject him. It's interesting, a few years ago, there was a book written by a man named Mark Hauser. It's called Moral Minds. And Hauser is an evolutionary psychologist from Harvard. He's not a Christian man, but it's interesting. The premise of his book is that morality is not something that we're taught as much as something that we're born with. And he did experiments with people across different cultures different ages, different upbringings. And he found when he asked them different questions about moral dilemmas, that people tended to answer the same about what they should do. In other words, there's this inherent idea of what is right and what is wrong. He says it this way. His thesis basically is this. There appears to be some kind of unconscious process driving moral judgments without its being accessible to conscious reflection. Now, he attributes that not to God, but to evolution. Uh, I would attribute it to the fact that God has placed on everybody's heart a sense of what is right and wrong to lead us to know him. And yet we've all run away. And, And I think we struggle with this concept of God's justice because often we don't really believe in the magnitude and the seriousness of sin. It's easy to look at a guy like Hitler and say, yeah, I think he should be punished forever. 
can't think of a punishment bad enough for that guy and I don't want him in heaven with me, right? Then I look at my own sin and I go, all I've really done is I slandered that guy in class. I stole something. I lied. And the reality is that God sees all sin as so serious that it merits eternal condemnation. You say, how is it fair that a lifetime of sin could merit an eternity of condemnation? And the reason is because the magnitude and severity of the punishment is not determined by how long it takes to sin. Hey, think about it this way. How long does it take for a murderer to kill a person? A few minutes? A day? How long do we punish that person for? Rest of their life. Why? Is that unfair? Is that unjust? No, because the length of the punishment is not determined by how long it takes to commit the sin. It's determined by the severity of the sin. It's determined by the circumstances surrounding it. It's determined perhaps even by who you sin against. If somebody kills a police officer, usually there are stiffer penalties than if they kill a mobster. So what we see in Scripture is everybody is condemned and everybody is liable to eternal condemnation because God views sin that seriously. So when God condemns on the basis of sin, he is just and right. Okay, but the great news is this. He's also extremely gracious. He's extremely gracious. John 3.16, passage that uh, you've learned since you were a kid and had Annie fill in the blank a few minutes ago. For God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There's a God that saw our sin, a God that saw our eternal condemnation, and he sent his only son. And I think often we overlook that in our desire to say, well, yeah, but what about people who haven't heard about Jesus? What about people who can't? Uh, Pause for a moment and take in the grace of God who gave Jesus Christ to take on the sin of of the world so that we could have life. So what we see in the scripture, interestingly, is that uh, we don't see the picture of people who are trying to find God and God's hiding himself from them. Instead, we see people running away from God in the opposite direction, all of us, and God sending Jesus and God giving us revelation and God chasing us down, and yet people continue to reject him. And God in his grace and mercy allows some to understand the truth. How does he make those decisions? Who uh, believes and who doesn't? I don't know. But we do see a God who has given enough understanding and enough revelation, and he's given his only son because he's gracious and wants us to know him. He gave life through Jesus Christ. Now, the natural question is, what do we do about like babies who die perhaps before they have the opportunity even or the ability to understand? What do we do about those who are uh, mentally incompetent that can't understand? What do we do about that? I think God's grace helps us answer this. As we've looked at Romans chapter one, what did we see in Romans one? Why are people condemned? Because they look at the revelation of God around them and they process it and they choose to reject him. Now, if God is gracious, 2 Timothy 3 actually says uh, he, doesn't, he desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. In other words, God is reaching out to mankind, giving information. If God is gracious and an individual is truly unable to understand, I do believe based on his grace, he won't condemn a person for making choices they're incapable of making. And we'll talk in a moment about the person who's capable but hasn't heard, but the one who's truly incapable I believe that God doesn't condemn, but that the blood of Christ 
covers those men and women. You have hints in the scripture even that God judges people based upon partly their circumstances and how capable they are of understanding. Luke chapter 12 says that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. In other words, those who have never heard and just have rejected perhaps general revelation, their punishment will be less severe. Those who have all of this understanding in the context, Jesus is talking to the Jewish leaders who have the law and the prophets and all the scripture. And he says, your condemnation will be more severe because you've rejected me. I have to believe that if there are those completely incapable of understanding, if condemnation is on the basis of that, then God is gracious to give them life. I was in a bookstore a couple of weeks ago with my 20-month-old son, just over a year and a half. As we were walking through the store, as toddlers do, he kept trying to grab stuff off the shelf, uh, books and all kinds of things. And of course, being his dad, I'm trying to stop him. I don't want to mess. I don't want to have to deal with it later. Uh, But let's just imagine for a second that he had grabbed something off of the shelf, walked out of the store. We get into the car and I look down and uh, he stole something from the store. I walk back in and I go to the manager and I say, I'm really sorry, my son stole this. Now, what's going to happen at that point? They're going to put him in cuffs, right? Take him to baby jail, right? (laughs) All the other hardened babies in there sit around and talk about what they did, okay? No, that's ridiculous, right? He has no understanding of what he's done. He's incapable of even getting why he shouldn't take it. Okay, now, On the other hand, you walk in there, I walk in there and take something, walk out with it. They probably will either fine us, arrest us, take us to jail. Somebody comes from another country, perhaps, who doesn't understand our laws or our rules and takes something. Guess what? They'll still go to jail. They might go to jail for a lesser period of time than you and me, but why? Because they ought to know still that stealing isn't okay. Pretty much every country has that rule to some degree. So he's capable of understanding even though he has ignorance of the specifics. The baby doesn't get it at all. So as I look at the scripture and I see these principles of God's justice, I can't answer with 100% certainty what God does with those who are truly incapable of understanding. But I do believe God is gracious and doesn't condemn. Now, the question then is, what about those who can believe but have never been able to hear the gospel? Perhaps they live in some tribe and they've never heard the message of the gospel, but their minds function and they're able to. What does God do with these men and women who have never heard? Here's what the scripture seems to indicate about those individuals. That is this, God is reaching out to them. God is reaching out to every single person to draw them to him. And what we see, again, from Romans chapter one, uh, we see that men and women don't reject God because they haven't heard about him or because he hasn't revealed himself, but men and women reject God because they are inherently sinful and they're running away. So even the man or woman in this little tribe in Africa who has never heard has been given revelation that they can process with their minds. And then what happens? As you look at the scripture, you see God giving men and women like that further understanding of the truth and further understanding of the truth until they hear the gospel and believe in Jesus. Truth is that uh, God, again, the picture of the scripture is a God who's reaching out, but people rejecting. Matthew chapter 22, there's a great parable. Actually, if you've got just a moment, open up to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. 
Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatted livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. The rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in and to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes, and he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, throw him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. All right. What is Jesus getting at? That God has issued this call to all of the world. And the reason people don't enter the feast, it's not because God is unclear. It's because they rejected it. They didn't want to come in. And at the very end, you see this man without wedding clothes. The idea appears to be that God has provided everything in Jesus Christ that is necessary for people to enter in the feast and stay there with him forever. And yet not everybody has taken him up on the offer. He says, many are called, but few are chosen. God is reaching out to the world, issuing this invitation. And God will not force men and women to his throne. But instead, he calls, and the Spirit moves, and somewhere in the mystery of God, there's an interplay between our responsibility and God's choice, and yet we are called to a genuine choice to believe in Jesus or reject, that God does not force our hand. Um, guys, uh, perhaps you've processed throughout your life the different ways to ask a girl out, right? Um, You've thought about, maybe I could go up and talk to her in person, although that's very scary. It's probably the best. Uh, I could call her on the phone. Uh, if I'm really, really afraid, I guess I could text her, right? You know, will you go out with me? Okay, we're getting hisses from the girls, and we should, right? So, all right, there's all kinds of ways you could do it, but what you don't do is walk up behind her with a frying pan, right? And pop her over the head, drag her in your car. She wakes up, and you go, we're at Chili's, Right? <laughs> Welcome to our date, right? <laughs> you don't do it that way. Why? Because you want her to choose you, All right? It makes a much better date if you give her the option, okay? Now, it is true. The scripture talks about God's choice of us in Jesus Christ, but it also talks about our responsibility to believe. And again, I cannot answer how those two things intersect in the grand scheme of eternity, but I can say God chooses and he places a genuine responsibility on men and women to trust him. And so the, the picture of the Bible is not, again, a story of people looking around for God and God hiding himself and saying, eh, I'm just going to show myself to a few people. The picture of the Bible is God revealing himself to the whole world. People running away from him and yet God in his grace saving some. And as I look at the Bible, what's interesting is I see that those men and women who don't seem to have an understanding of God, 
but who are seeking to know the truth, really seeking to know the truth. It's interesting, God tends to send them more information. There's a couple of really uh, key illustrations. One happens in Acts chapter 8 with Philip. There's this Ethiopian man, an African man who somehow has a copy of Isaiah and he's reading it and he doesn't understand it and he doesn't get what it's talking about. God actually takes Philip, this early disciple, and magically transports Philip to this guy's chariot where Philip shares the gospel with him and the man believes. Another illustration is Cornelius, a Jewish man who is faithful in serving the Lord and he wants to know God. In fact, it calls him a God-fearer. And God sends Peter to Cornelius to fill in the blanks about who Jesus is. As you look at Acts 17, which we, we've talked about in previous weeks, it says, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. In other words, God has even arranged where you and I live. He even knows where these tribal men and women live who have never heard the gospel and he has arranged it to give them an opportunity to hear of him. Why did he place me here and that person there? I don't know. God knows something about that person and something about these people and he's arranged the world to give men and women the opportunity to find him. Hebrews chapter 11, without faith it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And as men and women try to figure out who God is, I believe that God in his grace, if they want to know him, he's able to send any kind of revelation he can so that they will know him. I asked some of my friends this past week, friends who are serving overseas, particularly with our partnership, which is in a Muslim context. I said, have you ever heard of God revealing himself through a dream or a vision to an individual who doesn't have the Bible or have any understanding of who he is? And uh, one of our missionaries actually wrote back and she said, "Uh, you might be surprised to know that that's how most men and women first have an opportunity to hear about God over here. And uh, I got a few stories from some of our staff and missionaries This one missionary said that one student had an an experience or vision that she describes as being transported into the upper room, seeing her sin, being offered forgiveness, taking the bread and cup, accepting Jesus' death for her. She said it was the most real and unexplainably wonderful thing she's ever seen. She usually cries when she tells the story. In Central Asia, a woman had a vision after she'd been asking God to show her the real truth. She had a vision that Jesus walked into her apartment, pointed to the Bible, and said, in here you will find the truth. Another one, a girl told one of our uh, staff that she was dreaming that she fell into a pit of trash, slime, and filth she couldn't get out. She kept trying and trying but couldn't climb out by herself. She looked up and saw a man in bright white clothes at the top of the pit. He reached down to pull her out and he had a hole in his hand. Now I tell you these stories because these are all from people that I trust saying that these are men and women in in context where you go, how would they ever hear about Jesus? And yet as they pursue him, he finds them. And in each of these cases, that vision was followed up by a missionary meeting them and sharing Jesus Christ. So is God fair? Well, if if by fair you mean that everybody receives the same things in the same ways, no. Is God just? Is God righteous? Does he judge correctly? Absolutely. Because he's given everybody the opportunity to know him and to hear from him. 
I believe God moves forward and he will use whatever means he has to. But the reality is that the vast majority of humanity is running in the opposite direction. So God reaches out in Jesus Christ. He reaches out by giving us revelation in the world around us and even inside of ourselves through our conscience. And so we're called now to, to trust God's judgments. As I look at uh, a subject like this, again, I go, you know, I know there are still questions I cannot fully answer. But as I look at the scripture, I see enough evidence that God is working a plan that's much greater than I understand. And that I'm confident that when I stand before him one day, I'll be able to completely worship him and know that he has judged correctly. And so how do we respond? Like I said just a moment ago, first, we, we trust him. Trust that God's judgments are sound as the scripture tells us. Thirdly, proclaim him. You may be the vessel God uses to provide somebody with the knowledge that leads to the truth. And so as you speak the truth, God may move in their hearts through the spirit to draw them to himself. And we've talked about the great commission over and over again in here. You and I are called to be God's vessels to proclaim the truth to a world that doesn't know him. And some will run away and reject and others will accept because the spirit gets a hold of their life. And so we proclaim him and then thirdly, worship him. Worship him because he's so much grander and greater than we are because his understandings and his judgments are greater than ours. And this is ultimately where Paul gets Romans chapter seven, Romans chapter nine. He plums the depths of the mysteries of God's choice, God's justice. Then ultimately he kind of throws up his hands and he says, praise be to God. Because God understands these things and I don't. So I humble myself before him. I worship him. And then I say, God, make me a part of what you are doing to bring men and women from every tribe, every tongue, every nation to yourself. And I will trust you with the results. We're going to close with a song. And as we do, uh, just lift your hearts, lift your voices and worship to a God we can trust, a God who is just, gracious in Jesus Christ and reaching out to everybody. Father in heaven, uh, we are an undeserving people. Uh, We sin each day with our thoughts, with our attitudes, with our actions, even our words. And yet we praise you that in Jesus Christ, we have hope that he died for us in our place and rose again so that we might have life. Father, we pray that we would trust in your justice and in your grace And we pray that as we move out from here this evening and go back to another week of school and work, uh, we pray that we would proclaim the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ who died for us and that we would live in a way that reflects your character and your holiness. God, we love you. Pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. We'll see you next week.